And welcome back to the School PR Podcast, episode 101. We are talking budget today. And here we go. Be sure to visit soundmind.app, peachjar.com, and nickelstrategies.com. Advocating for public education, sharing our stories, and celebrating our schools, students, and staff. From crisis communications to media relations, social media, and everything in between, we're here to give you the best strategies, tools, and techniques to help you help others. Welcome to the School PR Podcast, brought to you by Peach Jar, Sound Mind, and Nickel Strategies. Here's your hosts, Matthew Jennings and Ryan Ferran. All right, welcome back to the School PR Podcast. Glad you are with us. We are definitely talking budget and fiscal issues today. We are thrilled to have Kevin Gordon, president and partner of Capital Advisors. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? Good. Good to be with you guys. So for people that don't know your background, I guess we'll just talk a little bit about that. Uh, You were executive director for CASBO for a long time, involved with CSBA. How did you get to where you're at now? Kind of what was your path? Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's you know got kind of a political path, of course. I was a political junkie from the time I was in high school, lived in the Sacramento area and was running down to the state capitol building almost every day when I was in high school. And just kind of uh, I did an internship at, for the then speaker while I was in high school. And then wow. when I went to UC Davis, I actually wrote a major in advocacy. I knew that's, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So, and of course being down in Sacramento, which is, makes it awfully convenient in terms of accessibility to the Capitol, um, gave me some really cool opportunities I wouldn't have otherwise had and really helped me sort of catch that bug. But I was very involved with student government. Then when I, uh, when I got done sort of thinking about, you know, what I was going to do educationally, then it was about career stuff. And, jumped into lobbying, you know, pretty straight away. And then there was an opportunity. I was working for actually the home builders. And what do home builders care about probably more than any other thing in the community is the quality of schools. So I got involved with a school bond campaign, a statewide school bond campaign. And the CSBA people said, hey, we've got an opening for a government relations person. And I ended up becoming at a pretty young age, the chief of government relations for CSBA. And then we started this firm, gosh, at least 12 years ago and started lobbying as a private sector firm representing public school agencies. And uh, now we have a crazy client list, you know, big client list of, um, you know, most of the major districts. And um, and we're branching out actually into community colleges, too, this coming year. So we're going to have a dozen of the biggest community college districts in the state as well. So, yeah, lots of stuff in the education arena, been doing this for like 30 years now. Um, yeah. And school finance is kind of one of the areas of expertise we have. That's awesome. People can check out your website, uh, capitaladvisors.org. And I know you work with so many districts. You're kind of the go-to and you advocate for districts all across. Do you do outside of California or primarily California? No, just it's all California public school agencies, but we do a, a healthy amount of advocacy work in Washington, D.C. as well. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Most of our listeners are in California because we're based yeah. in California. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so the news, <laughs> not good recently. $68 
billion dollar shortfall here in California. What are your thoughts on that and kind of what led to this, uh, this great, great news we all got? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is sort of the lesson of when the, when the government thinks they're doing everybody a favor by having you delay when you file your taxes, I honestly don't know that for most people, they really need it, honestly. And it just screws up the functioning of government to be able to plan accordingly with regard to the resources they have. So they moved it from April and we saw during the pandemic, they moved it in the summertime, but this time they moved it to all the way to October. And then- yeah, what. What is the reason? Because the pandemic made sense. Everyone yeah. was a mess. Our lives were, nobody had anything. Our income was, but why, yeah. why now? It was mostly flooding. It was flooding. And I think there were some mm. fires, but when you added up all the counties they were giving the relief to, it added up to a majority of where all the revenue would come from uh, in mm. the state. Uh, all the counties that got that kind of reprieve, but again, it was a majority of California counties that got it. It just delayed the, you know, us getting all that tax information. So the state of California went ahead and moved its deadlines, you know, in accordance with what the feds did. So, you know, you get to the end of last year, you know, we were three fourths through the school year around April and we didn't have any tax data. They finish up, they finish up basically that fiscal year without knowing what kind of revenue came in. They then the budget writers in Sacramento write a budget for the year that starts July 1 with no idea about what kind of revenue they've got. They're pretty much guessing and they guessed wrong in a really big way. And <laughs> the bottom line is if they had known what then in April, after April 15th, what they know now, they would have adopted it. Absolutely would have adopted a different budget going into this current year. And we would have had less resources, no doubt about it, in public education. But, you know, we wouldn't be in the hole that we're in now. I mean, that, they say the first rule of holes is to stop digging, you know, when, <laughs> when, when you're in one. Yeah. <laughs> well, Good advice. What is frustrating, and I'm not an economic wizard, but <clears throat> how did we not all see this coming last year with everyone giving double-digit raises through California and all the all the other economic factors were not good. Birth rates are down. People are leaving the state. The revenue is not good. And so we're giving out historic raises that we haven't seen in generations. Yeah. And then what did we think was going to happen? Like that is a, what I think is driving people insane right now. Yeah, I know. It's really um, it's you know, you think about the unprecedented 8.22 percent cola that we got. It was approved in the budget. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that if we knew we had the kind of budget gap we had last April, that the legislature and the governor probably would not have given that 8.22% COLA. They would certainly wouldn't have given us a full COLA and not giving us a full COLA would have meant it, it would change the face of bargaining all across the state in terms of what was, what was agreed to. But, mm -hmm. you know, again, there are going to be some people when you talk about, being off the mark by that dimension that they've got some egg on their face. It's one thing to be off, but being off by that much is just really, really kind of crazy. And I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, there would have been a lot of signs there. You know, people thought they were being conservative, but one of the things we always look for was look for the, the nonpartisan legislative analysts opinion about it. And then we look for the California department of finance's opinion. 
And those two entities track like probably a dozen different economic sources, including the UCLA Anderson School uh, when they look at their forecast and all these different economic just sort of variables that they look at when they put together forecasts. You expect it to materialize somehow in those. And and yet everybody sort of missed this one. And it's kind of crazy, but they did. So what do you think ultimately this is? What does this mean and what is the state going to do? What are school yeah. districts going to do? What, what, do you, what do you think? What's the best advice moving forward? Well, the one thing that I was kind of heartened by when I looked at the legislative analyst report is, is I, I sort of had this mixed emotion. Number one is I just about fell out of my chair when I saw the number, you know, how mm-hmm. far off we were. But then I was uh, really, really pleased when I looked at the legislative analysts overall sort of conversation about how to solve it relative to schools. And, you know, solving this is going to, the big burden on this is going to actually be more on the non-school side of the budget than it is on the school side for a couple reasons. One is we've got an $8.1 billion reserve for schools only that we get to, you know, deal with. And then there's, you know, there's also a decent, rainy day fund that the state's general fund has, but in proportion to the non 98 side, it's, it's, it's not like what we've got. We've got a bigger Mm -hmm. safety net than the rest of the state budget has. So we Mm -hmm. have that fund. First of all, we saw, we had economic problems last year and everyone did what they could not to tap that money, which was a smart thing to do because they said tougher times could be ahead. And lo and behold, they are. And so someone said, you know, should we be should we be running down those reserves? And, you know, my answer is, you know, if you take a look at that number called sixty eight billion dollars, that's the definition of it's raining. And so (laughs) rainy day fund, you know, we need it. And so that's going to help us a lot. And then and then they talk about in the legislative analyst report, you know, a, a concept that's very unusual that I haven't seen during the entire time I've been working in this business, which is that instead of saying, how can we cut schools down to the rock bottom minimum under the constitution? They basically say, look at, we need to let legislators know what the policy options are. And one of them should be following what they call baseline funding, Mm. baseline funding being exactly where we're at right now. What does that cost? And what would it cost to just sustain that? No, no cost of living increases and stuff like that, but just baseline funding. Where does that get you? And that's one of the alternatives. The other alternative is one that says, um, again, let's take the rainy day fund. Let's apply it to the first of the three years that are in their forecast, the 22-23 fiscal year, which sounds weird because that's a year that's already closed. But they would apply the they would apply the reserve to that year, and then it would have forward year implications that would take a, what is a huge, obviously huge problem. We're forty cents out of every dollar. That's a big number, and instead mm-hmm. of taking us down to that rock bottom minimum um, for all the money that we lost, they would say mm-hmm. let's let's. Put the reserve in there and then let's try to curb the degree to which we cut school funding um, so that it ends up being about 
what the ledge analysts are proposing, about $5 billion of one-time cuts from the current year we're in the middle of. And then, and then in the next year, all we would forego is the COLA. That's it. Mm. So mm. that's kind of an interesting proposition. We got to look at it because it does involve some pain. We would love the legislature to say, let's just do baseline budget and not cut us. But I don't think it, with a, a deficit this big, we're going to avoid cuts. Yeah. So <laughs> you mentioned really? the, re the state's reserve. I wonder if you think we're getting to a point where they let school districts carry more reserve to kind of help with the issue themselves. What do you think about the school district reserve and the limits on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't see that necessarily changing. And then our friends, our labor partners, as you know, have never been wild <laughs> yeah. about us having big reserves. And in fact, they fight even some what I consider to be reasonable reserves. And so, yeah. and they were responsible for the legislation that ended up going through that capped our reserves, which is insane. Um, everybody should know that a real healthy reserve for a school district is the first line of defense from doing layoffs. That affects our labor partners. But for whatever reason, that wasn't in the dynamic. They don't didn't like reserves. They thought districts were holding too much in reserves and want them to spend it at the collective bargaining table. So, so you get that much less solvency for school districts when they run into problems like this. So, but I don't, I don't see that reserve dynamic changing. There's not going to be the ingredients to get that reserve amount kicked up. And in fact, what tends to happen during a budget crisis, that's when they actually announce to school districts, look at, normally we want you to put, be putting away at least 3%, a 3% reserve. If you're going to have to spend stuff down, we're going to let you spend it down and not have to replace it right away. They actually waive the reserve requirements during bad years. I expect uh, that to potentially be the case in the next year or two. Mm. That they'll start looking for ways to give us flexibility on how we get our money and how we spend it. Mm. Yeah, it just seems like an interesting formula. Spend down the money, but then when we do layoffs, your people are the ones getting let go. And it's like you, some people have more money in their pocket yet then there's a lot of people with no jobs, period, with yeah. no money in their pocket. So, And I just want to say that, you know, we ought to be thinking more collectively as an ed community, protect each other. A big reserve is, is again, it's a first line of defense. And what we've done for some nonsensical reason is allow for reserves to not be a priority. Now, obviously, I mean, I do think that our labor partners would say, hold on a second, look at the average reserves that districts have been carrying for the last few years, and they're crazy high. And I totally agree with that. But part of it is because districts have been given a bunch of one-time money that has strings attached. They have to mm -hmm. park it somewhere, and they yep. park it there, but they got to spend it on something very, very specific. And so yep. it artificially looks like they got more money they're just sitting on enjoying than then really they don't. And so there's a lot into this, but I think generally speaking, the idea of depleting reserves or not having adequate reserves is not a good idea. And it's not changing, it sounds like, anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's going to be interesting to see, you know, the governor still has a budget that he's got to introduce. I think there's a, a you know, I think there's an even chance the governor's going to come out and say, look at these investments we made are way too important. I don't want to see cuts there. We're going to try to come up with some ideas that 
that try to protect public education. I mean, he could go that way. And the legislature, I think, is also very, very animated about doing any kind of reductions to schools. Now, I don't know how you balance this budget without touching such a big chunk of the overall budget, which is education. It's going to be really hard. One thing I think good that came out of the pandemic was we realized that schools are critical for a functioning society. We were first and second responders, testing kids, giving them vaccinations, feeding them when schools were closed. I think we realized the importance of schools, which is, I think uh, us in education realized it, but I think uh, maybe the politicians realized like, wow, we're, our society crumbles without schools. Restaurants couldn't open, but we can go to the school and they can get fed there and vaccinated and tested and all that sort of stuff. So I think that was good. But so I, I do like the news that they have education on a higher priority instead of just cut education and we'll deal with it as we always do. That's good. But I also feel like we're that's good for next year, short term. But long term, we're looking at a national teacher crisis, declining enrollment in California and many other states, crime and perception of crime in all these states and communities, California, especially where businesses are moving out. There goes most of our revenue. So short term, okay, we have reserves, but long term, there are so many factors that I don't think people, I hope they're realizing up in Sacramento, like this is not a Band-Aid fix. There are a lot of issues um, that we need to deal with long term because uh, there seems like a lot of them compounding big time right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to piggyback on what you said, Ryan, because the one thing I think was remiss in that, and I think you meant it, but you didn't say it specifically, was all the health and mental resources that came out of COVID as well. Our school psychologists, our counselors, our teachers' aides, and the, and the aides in the classroom, uh, really incredibly important positions that now districts are facing having to cut or, or, or roll back on, which just goes back to everything else you just said. You know, when we have kids that are supported in school, there's going to be lower crime rates out in the community. There's going to be higher attendance rate, higher graduation rates, higher, you know, job uh, satisfaction rates and, and all the things that come out of that that's positive, just based on the mental health resources we've been flooding into schools across the country. Yeah. And coming back from the pandemic before, Kevin, you try to answer this very <laughs> complex question with all these issues, uh, t teacher burnouts at an all time high too. coming out of the pandemic. We're seeing behavior issues that we haven't seen before. So we have a teacher shortage combined with teacher burnout at all time high. I know Thurman and the folks try to get, you know, teacher salaries way up, but how's that going to happen? We have no money. So there's a lot of factors that don't look good for long-term health. Yeah, there's all kinds of challenges. And even before they announced these big budget problems in Sacramento, we knew there was a cliff effect of a lot of the one-time money we had from the feds in the state shutting off the last sort of dollars that the Fed gave us in what that program called ESSER expires in September of 24. And it's funny, I, I heard a superintendent the other day sort of criticizing colleagues that spent a lot of that money on personnel, on people. And they said, you know, there was one-time money. You don't spend one-time money on people. Well, if you looked at the ESSER Act, Congress likes it both ways. Is very explicitly in that aid money was an imperative for school districts to hire the people needed to deal with the well-being of children, including mental health issues, just exactly what you were mentioning, Matt. And um, and so a lot of districts said, look, we're going to do the right thing and we're going to staff up and we're going to get an army of people that can help 
our kids be successful. And it's more than just the teaching and learning part. It's the whole child. And we're Mm going to see if we can do some really great things and move the needle for these kids academically. And we're seeing the results academically. I mean, all the data is telling us that we are able to make gains in recovery as a result of the investments that are being made. But because the dollars shut off, it means we learned that money does matter and you can invest it in really important ways for kids. But what we also learned is that what, or at least the hope was that policymakers and budgeters would say, this is proving to be effective. Let's continue some of that investment. And what in fact is now happening is it's shutting off. So districts are actually having to shut down positions and programs. They know make a difference for kids, make a difference for kids. And, um, and so it's really tragic that way, but you add that to the budget problems we have. I always say, Look, at if we can insulate the cuts to public education, that's great. But but we should also be equally concerned about the cuts that happen on the non-school side of the state budget that affect the very kids and families that are at our schools and our communities. That's right. About. Yes, that's absolutely. Just kind of underscoring your point, Matt, which is that when you talk about a child's well-being, their mental health, all of that, a lot of that infrastructure and a lot of the money – flows through the non-school part of the state budget. So we do have to be concerned about what the consequences of deep, deep cuts are going to be across this entire budget for families and kids that we serve. Will the formula be the same in five or 10 years with birth rates down, teacher shortage, teacher burnout, all these factors, people leaving the state? At some point, are they going to have to change the ADA formula because it's just not going to suffice? And how who who's going to teach these kids? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. I call it an opportunity, which is that we have this thing called a convergence of two types of formulas. One is Proposition 98. It's in the Constitution. It's the funding requirement that the state has to put money into schools. And typically, most years, until now, when we have a real big drop in revenue, but most years it's growing. And when you have the overall pot of money generally, in most years, growing, but you have a decline in enrollment, it means the per-pupil amount has an opportunity to go up. Mm -hmm. And what I always say is just because the formula on the distribution of money for attendance, ADA, Uh, you're losing kids doesn't mean the legislature has to abandon the school and in fact should double down on its investment on a per kid basis for the kids that are still there. Mm. So we've Mm -hmm. got this funding requirement. We don't lose the money out of the education pot. It stays in the education pot. School Mm. districts lose it compared to another district that may be growing or that sort of thing. If there's other kids, but The dollars are there. The dollars are there to do something with. And so as we loosen up the money that's generated on a per ADA basis, it may it gives policymakers an opportunity to say, what are we going to do with this marginal savings that has to be spent on education, but doesn't just go as discretionary, whatever you want to do with it to the school district is Yes, you have less kids, you're going to get less that way, but maybe there's a different way we can support public schools with that money that does have to stay in the education pot. So the formula won't change. I mean, we have talked about um, enrollment-driven funding, 
And that's gotten kind of bastardized over the last couple of years because of people's clever mm-hmm. legislation to try to define it in a way that doesn't really work. But the, the philosophy is a good one that says that instead of we fund kids based on each day they attend, we ought to fund kids on general enrollment for the school. And, and it's like setting the stage for teaching and learning. Just because a kid's not in school one day doesn't mean anybody saved any money. Still have to pay the teachers. Still have to do. If the kids are there, doing the kids the assignments and everything else. Yeah. You know? If they're not there for a week, if they're not there for a month, we really don't save money unless a kid is just not there for the year. And we do have that problem too. But mm. enrollment-based funding, which is how many kids do you have for the year, makes more sense. But it doesn't make sense if the state's not willing to fund it. And what has been floating around the legislature a proposal that would move to enrollment-based funding, but it doesn't put all the money in necessary to actually make it work. So then what you do is you steal money from districts that are actually doing really well to the districts that don't do really well on attendance. They get the ones that don't do well on attendance get kind of rewarded. It's kind of not a good system. So until we get that proposal worked out, an enrollment-based kind of approach is probably not coming to very soon. So, mm-hmm. but the Prop 98 piece, suffice it to say, as long as the overall economy is doing well and the general fund is growing, Prop 98 and school investment does well. What we're in for is a couple of years in a row here where we're going to be either cutting or we're going to be really flat. And that's hard. And it's particularly hard on those other problems that you mentioned that are not going away soon. Teacher supply, teacher burnout, you know, some of those issues. That, that Those are real challenges. Is the state <clears throat> doing much that those some of those factors that are impact education, like, you know, businesses leaving the state, residents leaving the state, are they, you know, are you seeing any solutions for that? Or is it still, you know, the sun is shining in California, people will always come? I think these, these figures are going to be really jarring to the system at the state level. And people at the Capitol Building have got to take notice of the out-migration of people who have generated the kind of incomes that generates revenue for the state of California. Clearly, we're losing those folks. So when we have people that are making hundreds of millions of dollars or billionaires leaving the state, every one of them that leaves takes their bag of tax dollars with them that would otherwise stay here. That's a problem, and they need to look in the mirror and figure out who's the cause of that problem. So we're going to need to kind of adjust that. But the other issue that that columnist uh, George Skelton of the LA Times and Dan Walters of CalMatters just wrote about this week is the lack of the legislature and governor's action on massive tax reform in California. We have a tax structure and we never mind it until we have a year like this. As long as billionaires are doing great, we don't mind that our tax structure is completely dependent on them. But then when things, there's a big hole in the bottom of the boat here, um, then they say, oh, my gosh, maybe we ought to have a tax restructuring so that all of our revenue isn't completely dependent on extremely rich people in the stock market. And that's the Uh way it is, is that we've got to diversify our tax structure in California so it's not overly dependent on income alone. 
you know, Kevin, I have a, I have a question. Just kind of go backwards just a little bit. Um, there was an article in Ed Week, and it talked about how one out of all four districts that had responded to a survey, one out of four districts that responded to the survey have no plan for when these ESSER funds expire, you said in September. Right. Do you find that's pretty typical here in the state of California? There's just there's just districts are looking at this and going, we have no idea where these what we're going to do to fund things at the level we are right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's one of the things we have an advantage of in California is we have the local control accountability plan, the LCAP, which is tied to budget priorities. And so what districts are doing is they are going through the process of anticipating that they're not going to have the money to continue to do some of those things. So they're just not going to do them. So it's probably correct. They don't have a plan to continue with them, but that is the plan. They're not going yeah. to be continuing this stuff. And, and so it all has to fit within the context of the budget. And it's just going to exacerbate the contraction that we're going to see in budgets that in addition to letting people go because the ESSER funds aren't there, we're going to be doing some layoffs for whatever programmatic targets are out there. And I mean, it's funny because both you guys were talking about earlier, the thing that we learned during COVID was the essential nature of, of public schools to the core of a community. And this idea that the governor was inspired by, and he put $4 billion into it called community schools, where he's got grants going all over the state. Well, it turns out the bulk of that money hasn't been spent yet. So the number one target that the legislative analysts mentioned, and again, they mention it doesn't mean right away that the legislature is going to run around and do this, but it's low hanging fruit is that there's several billions of dollars that have not been spent. That's dedicated to community schools that could end up, you know, meeting the chopping block if they needed that money. And there they undermine the very thing that we learned in COVID is a good thing to do, but we don't have the money. So it's like, it's, it's just a problem, but, but, they're looking for the things that they're going to end up having to try to um, make reductions to. And it's going to be stuff that costs a lot of money. The one thing that I was encouraged by is a legislative analyst said, look, at, we don't we want to try to avoid going in and cutting programs and and money out of districts where the districts already got the money. With like a clawback kind of thing. We want to avoid that is what they were saying. What we really want to do is look at all the money that hasn't gone out the door yet and try to focus on trying to keep that. And I get the sensibility of it, but it's tragic because really good programs like community schools could fall prey to that because that and there's a few others like it that where the state didn't get their act together and get the money out the door. So let that be a lesson to the bureaucrats that don't know how to mobilize quickly is that. Yeah, get that money out the door and let's get school districts to, to spend it on good things. So yeah. over the years, parcel taxes and bond measures, I feel like have been a blessing and a curse because the state knows ah, the communities that they're really suffering, it'll get bad enough and they'll have to f pass a parcel tax or a bond measure and that'll kind of bail us out and they'll be fine. But if we keep passing them, then the state knows we can pass them. And so then they hold back money. So where are you at with districts, you know, when the money's not there, encouraging them to go out for parcel taxes, bond measures, and where do they kind of figure into this equation in the future? Yeah. I mean, the the bond measure issue is obviously separate. It's not 
to ameliorate cuts to program because it's primarily for facilities infrastructure, right? And mm -hmm. there's a there's an absolute need for that. We need a statewide bond measure so that school districts, when they pass their local bonds, have something to match against so that every tax dollar goes further. So you got that. So I think there needs to be more local bonds, and we think there needs to be statewide bonds too. And then parcel taxes to the degree those are available to help mitigate some reductions in specified areas because you usually need to be very specific with your communities about how you're going to use that money, what specific mm -hmm. ways are you going to try to either save a program or build capacity. But the one concern for me that lingers for both program, a bond or a parcel tax is the disequity statewide based on a community's capacity to tax themselves. There you yes. go. Yeah. Are you going to have two communities sit side by side where mm -hmm. they both want to say yes, where mm -hmm. both of them can actually get it passed and each of them will raise dramatically different amounts of money because uh -huh. one doesn't have the property value the other has. Or hmm. like, you know, parcel taxes, obviously, is just a per parcel tax. Um, so that's different. But definitely for facilities, you can have, which is going to be, you know, property uh, tax oriented. There are there's, there are basic tax capacity issues where one community would charge themselves a certain rate and the community next door you know, whatever that percentage is, one's going to raise a ton of money and the other's going to raise nothing. And that's just, it's just unfair. And we, we need to do more to try to equalize that process out there so that people have those opportunities to use bond measures. And a community says, well, there's a reason why I'm going to say yes. And it's because the system's been equalized a little bit so that poorer communities have a, a chance to raise real money when they go to the ballot as opposed to, you know, chump change. So I love that. Hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting formula because, you know, the more affluent districts, they're almost reliant on parcel tax and bond measures. Like they have to have them or they don't have what other schools get because they have, they're in those uh, communities that get more funding. So it's an interesting formula. And yeah. it's, um, it's, yeah, uh, it, I mean, basic general operating money. It's funny. So parcel taxes and bond measures when you're in an affluent community, you can do those kinds of things. But what's interesting is you take a look at affluent communities like Newport Beach or Palos Verdes or – I mean we can list them all. If you look at their general purpose funding that they get as a school district, they actually get less money than a lot of yeah. districts. Yeah, less. That's the thing. They can do them, but they have to do them because yes. if they don't, then they're just – they're on the short end. So Correct. it's like those districts, while they're – generally quote affluent they still have poor kids in there and they're yes. not getting that money so there's yeah. there's this equity equation that where there's this big loophole well, it's, it's like not necessarily just about you know whether they've got poor, any poor kids or not it's that the dirty little secret is that those really affluent communities don't get more money because the districts get the most amount of money in california it's it's what it was envisioned. It's very purposeful, but it's right. exponentially more money if you have large amounts of concentrations of kids in poverty. Those mm -hmm. are the districts with the most amount of actual money. Now, they've got big problems and big challenges, mm -hmm. to be sure, but you can be – Palos Verdes is a great example where a very affluent community 
and almost every district that surrounds them gets significantly more money than they get on a per kid basis. Yeah. And people go, well, don't worry about it. Those kids are going to do fine because they're from affluent families and they'll figure out how to go to Stanford and Harvard and use yeah. Berkeley. But the reality is, is they have fewer resources to just do what they need to do to be successful in school, counselors and all that kind of stuff that every other school should. We should have a baseline that every school has in terms of edu education excellence. And we never quite got there. Hmm. Yeah, such a great point. Well said. As we wrap up, Kevin, so timeline going future, we're now mid-December, wrapping up December. What are some of the key dates and what should we be looking for as we start planning our budgets and we all yeah. start freaking out a little bit? <laughs> yeah, so January 10th is all eyes are on January 10th. Governor will be introducing his state budget at that point. Um, hmm. Following that, we actually do budget workshops that are free, including a virtual one. So if people go to capitaladvisors.org, and that's capital with an O-L, like the building. Uh, I think there's a capital advisors out there that's at the A-L that will help you invest your money. That's not us. But, but capital advisors with an O-L, um, if you go to our website, and again, it's capitaladvisors.org, it's look for workshops and all of those are free. People sign up for them. You get the the lowdown on exactly what's in the budget. What are the implications for schools? We like to kind of speak English on that one. So it's not really for the green eye shades. It's for average folks, but including superintendents, board members, CBOs at a level that's, you know, not it's not designed for the accounting staff. It's designed for regular people to understand what's in that budget. And then the debate opens up. The governor's budget will be on the table. The nonpartisan legislative analysts, people then start duking it out over wh what is the best way to solve this budget. They go into hearings, and then the governor gets a chance to revise that budget after he finds out what kind of tax revenue he has in April. I'm not looking for April to give us any kind of savior this year at all. I don't think uh -huh. it's going to turn things around dramatically. It could even be worse. So that's the May revision. And then they get a 30-day period to finalize the budget between May 30th and uh, June – I mean May 15th and June 15th. And we get a final budget. So, yeah, lots of politics in the middle of that, though. Yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> be sure to follow the school PR uh, podcast Facebook page. We have the Instagram, the Twitter, post clips of the show and all that sort of stuff. We talk everything, public education, public relations. Um, we appreciate our sponsors, Peach Jar, Sound Mine, and Nickel Strategies for everything they do. So, Kevin, uh, be final question for you, I guess. What, uh, what advice would you give to school districts as we all kind of await these big dates and, and the news ahead for the budget forecast? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to panic at the moment. Um, and and it's just too hard to guess where they might come after stuff. But I think if we're going to be vulnerable at all, it's going to be on programs that you were hoping to get money that you have not received yet. I think there's very less likelihood that the state takes money away from dollars you've already gotten. So mm. if there's something you're counting on you and you're thinking I'm going to be I got a community schools grant or I got some grant that's coming to me, but I haven't received the money yet um, that that you need to think hard about. And then and then be ready to advocate. This is going to be one of those years where lobbying and advocacy, giving voice to these issues is going to be super, super important. <laughs> 
Well, you are one of the best advocates in the state. We appreciate you always uh, helping us out and making us smarter for sure. I, I just appreciate your insights and you are one of the best in the business. If anyone's been to one of the big conferences, CASBO, CSBA, they know uh, your session, they're, they're always packed and people are in there for a reason because you have uh, the best insights and info. So we appreciate you taking some time and breaking mm -hmm. down the, uh, the budget news. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Max. Good to be with you. Happy to come yeah. back anytime. Thank you. Awesome. Yep. Thank we'll you. See you.